So we have reached the end of the church year and the end of this book, which is itself the end of the Bible. And as one of its chief themes is the end of the world, my obvious question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the end of the world? In Matthew 24, Jesus says, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in Revelation 22, the end, the very, very end of the Bible, Jesus says in verse 7, I am coming soon. Again in verse 12, I am coming soon. And again in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Repeated three times, three being symbolic of, of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of this statement. And this word surely, double emphasizing the point, you can rely on Jesus when he says the world is about to end and he is coming soon. So are you ready? That's the question today. We're in Revelation 19. Do turn to it, please. We're going to look at what the end is like and how to be ready. But first, let's remind ourselves what Jesus is like. So chapter 19, verse 11. John records for us, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, meaning zoom in, slow down, take careful note, a white horse. White is symbolic of purity and victory. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Many philosophers believe there are different ways of determining what is true. The first option, I think, is for the individual to determine the truth for themselves. And this is certainly a popular idea in our world right now. It appeals to individualistic societies like ours. And you will see this concept manifest in phrases like this. My truth is this. That might be true for you, but let me tell you my truth. Stuff like that. In this worldview, the individual becomes the sole arbiter of right and wrong, and even sometimes what is real. Everyone else is required to run around and collude with you and your idea of the truth, even if they know it to be false. In many respects, this is Satan's philosophy. The ultimate form of narcissism is to impose a lie on everyone else as the truth. And of course, it destroys societies because it becomes impossible to trust anyone at all and anything that anyone says at all if there are multiple truths. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or well, what is truth? Uh, the second option, this has had a lot more success. The second option to determine what is true is for the group, the tribe or the, or, the, or the country or whatever, to gather and to craft a broad consensus about the truth. The truth will be determined by all of us. Uh, don't eat that plant on that hill up there. It is poison. Agreed? Yes. It is agreed because... Josh Naraki once fed me the plant from that hill and my vision went purple and I threw up violently because Zach told them it was ramps. And he denies it. He's denied, he denies it to this day. Uh, but I was very sick. Do not eat the plant on that hill, uh, whatever it is. Um, other, other truths we can agree together. Do not smash your neighbor on the head and steal his cooking pot. That is bad. Agreed? 
Yes, it's bad. We agree. And of course, as we become more sophisticated as a group, as the world progresses, we enshrine these things in bodies of law. And we even declare them sometimes to be fundamental truths, like life, liberty, and, and fruit of the loom. I'm still, still revising for my citizenship test, and I might not have that one quite right. In this model, the community agrees on what is true. We, we do this together. And uh, in this model, the community can even agree to change the truth. You can sort of update it a little bit. Turns out if you cook the plant on that hill, it is safe to eat after all. Agreed? Okay, let's update the truth. Um, if your neighbor is really, really bad, the state, the organs of the state, the police and the court system can smash him on the head and steal his pot and give it to you. Is that okay? Yes, agreed. We have a police force that is allowed to use violence. The individual is not. What is the problem, do you think, with group truth, with society determining the truth? Well, any single one of us in this room right now could point to numerous examples from human history where this has gone horribly wrong. For the exigency of the moment, whole nations will sometimes tear up the truth if needs be. Look at the horrors of the 20th century. Look at how many people went to gas chambers or gulags or starved to death next to silos full of food because someone updated the truth. Whole societies can go wrong. So it turns out if the individual is incapable of determining the truth for themselves as an isolated soul, and even whole nations can go wrong when they determine the truth together, sometimes there remains a third possibility. That maybe our innate sense that <laughs> something stinks in this world, something's not quite right, requires there to be something outside of this world, something external that could determine what is true for us. Jesus claims that is he himself, that he is the way, the life, and the truth, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Our innate sense that there is something wrong and that there is some kind of morality out there is given to us by the moral lawgiver himself, Jesus Christ. The comfort of Revelation 19 is that as well as true, he is also faithful. I like to translate the biblical word faith with the English word trust. That does a much better job, I think, for us in modern English of getting to the heart of the meaning of the New Testament word. Faithfulness and faith in Scripture is not an abstract concept. I have faith that God is real. I believe there's a sky fairy up there somewhere that does nice things. It's a very applied concept, faith in Scripture, like the word trust. Uh, I trust that this ground will not give way and that I can stand on it and even jump upon it. You can rely on Jesus. You can base and build your life upon Jesus. And he will be consistently and predictably true. That's what this word means. Having determined right from wrong, because he's the sole arbiter of what is right and wrong. He's also allowed to determine whether you are, where you fit in. In righteousness, he judges. There are no inconsistencies in the judgment of Christ. There's no caprice. 
There's no kind of, uh, in the words of the Book of Common Prayer, merely winking at evil and letting it slide. Rather, still in verse 11, he makes war against evil. The judge, the sole arbiter of what is true, has a settled authority to what is false. He hates what is wrong. He's a soldier. He's a warrior, this judge. Very much like the judges we looked at in our series from the book of Judges. If you have been wronged, if someone has smacked you on the head and stolen your cooking pot or fed you ramps in scare quotes, Jesus will fight for you. If someone has done you harm, he will fight for you. And his eyes, we're told, are like flame of fire. He overlooks nothing. There's nothing that he misses. There's no little detail that slides on by. He sees everything. And on his head are many diadems. Remember, there are different words for crowns in the New Testament. We've looked at them several times in this series. These are the ruler's crowns. These are symbols of authority and symbols of power. And we've had seven crowns, and we've had 12 crowns, but now we have many crowns. We have an unnumbered number of crowns telling us that the authority and the power of this king is beyond measure. He's a soldier, he's a judge, and he's a king. And with many crowns, he rules and he reigns over every pretender to his throne. This is Christ the King Sunday today. It's not Christ a King Sunday. Uh, You see there in verse 16 that uh, he's described as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have this phraseology reflected in the collect for today and in the proper preface to Holy Communion in a few moments' time, telling us that he reigns supreme. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is over all things. There's so much revealed about Jesus in these few sentences, that he's a a soldier who will fight for you, that he's a judge who will miss nothing and come and adjudicate what has happened to you, that he's the king of kings and he rules over all things eternally. But there's so much we don't know. Verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We've got to be humble. We don't know it all. We cannot know it all, not this side of eternity. We could not possibly, as humans, grasp everything that there is to grasp about God right now. That would make him only as impressive as the smartest person in this room. And that's not that impressive. I'm sorry, Richard. (laughs) No, no, who is? But that would not be very, very impressive, would it? Really. If he was only as good as any of us. There are mysteries, there are great mysteries of the Christian faith that we will not understand this side of eternity. These mysteries are merely hinted at in the book, but no more. When I was a a child, there was an eclipse of the sun. Everyone got very excited about the eclipse. And we all made these little pieces of card with a pinhole in the middle. Because obviously, if you look at the sun directly, it will just burn your face off. And so what you have to do is is come up with some device. A a welding mask is quite a good one, actually. But uh, we made these. We didn't have a welding mask. We made a little card with a pinhole in it, and we held that up to the sun, and it cast an image of the eclipse on the ground that we could see kind of moving across in the shadow there on the ground. 
the book of Revelation is a bit like that. Not being possible to grasp everything there is to grasp about God in the fullness of his face. We get merely a, a kind of image, a kind of shadow, a, a picture, a depiction of what Christ is like. That is the revelation that this book is all about. The book of Revelation reveals as much as we can handle about Jesus. Not everything. Just as much as we can take. So if you've been going through the book, you've been going through this study with us since September, feeling a little bit frustrated some weeks that you leave, feeling like you don't quite get it all. That's normal. That is to be expected. Relax. You cannot get it all this side of eternity, but you can get enough to know the truth. What do we know about Jesus? He is the ultimate soldier, judge, and king. He is uniquely faithful and uniquely true, and that he is coming soon. What do we know about that? What do we know about his coming? What is it like in the end? Well, verse 15 says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's another elaborate image depicting a foundational, simple, fundamental truth of the Christian faith. God will get the bad guys. He's going to get all the bad guys. There's not a literal wine press. You understand it's an image, right? It's taken from the book of Isaiah for the total defeat of the enemies of God. And it's really interesting because so far in this book, it is the people of God who have been hard-pressed. The people of God who have been suffering. The word tribulation that we've looked at in this book numerous times, comes from the wine press. It's a, a word that described the action of the olive press or the wine press. It refers to a, a wooden barrel full of grapes or olives and a screw-down lid with a big worm drive and a handle that would be applied to push down on the grapes or the olives until a little tap was opened at the bottom and the, the juice came flowing out. Taking a common domestic appliance, they had a wine press, like we have a washing machine or a dishwasher, taking a thing they saw every day as an image to describe the end of the world, God says, I know that many of you right now feel trapped. You feel like you're inside of that barrel with the lid coming down upon you. You feel like you can't escape. I know that many of you feel abused. I know that many of you have been pressured or pressurized into doing things you did not want to do. And I know that you have been hurt. And I know that right now it feels as though your very lifeblood was being squeezed out of you. I've heard you say, I'm under pressure right now. You don't know the pressure I'm under. I've heard you say, I feel oppressed. I've heard you say, I feel depressed. Same root word, pressure. I feel trapped, I feel heavy, I feel crushed. Same concept, in the barrel. So we have these words that describe the common experience of, of being someone who suffers. And someone who suffers without hope. And then the image of Revelation 19 suddenly flips the script. Instantly. Release is coming for the captives. Release is coming for the frau. Goodbye, my love. 
captivity is coming for the enemies of God. There's a flipping of the script. You've been in the barrel, you're feeling under pressure, and the promise is at the end of the world, you'll be broken out and the bad guys will be put in. He will press them. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is Psalm 2 being fulfilled, where in even stronger terms, Jesus comes at the end of the world to smash the world to bits, not just the wine press, but everything that we know. A judge, a soldier, and a king who will crush our enemies and break the world apart is coming, and you can trust that he is coming soon. Not merely believe it as a truth, but rely upon it, trust it, because he is truth. Of course, many of us have believed that he's not coming soon, or maybe even at all. And we've trusted, therefore, just about everything else instead. Oh, we've gone around trusting stuff, all of us. Our education, resources, good lucks, not me, some of you, health, We've trusted these things. We've trusted the world and its trinkets and religious trinkets and gilded rubbish and escape plans and backup escape plans. We've trusted these things. Let me show you just how fragile all of these things are. All of them. I read a piece of writing the other day. I'm going to share it with you without context. I'm just going to read this thing. I don't know what it's about or where it's from. And while I read it, just imagine yourself there. The authorities are jumpy. The magma is now thought to be just 500 yards below the surface, right on the edge of town. And they fear there could be an eruption at any time. In the town center, the ground looks like it's being unzipped, with a gash stretching 150 yards or so. Where it crosses a main road, the rip is a couple of yards wide, with one side a yard lower than the other. There are enormous forces at work, splitting megatons of rock. And the earth is still moving, stones shifting and tumbling down into the crack. In places, it was too deep to see the bottom. Clouds of steam rise from the gash, pulled apart with the shifting ground. The ground beneath our feet is supposed to be rock solid. We even call it terra firma, but it's not, not now you feel it could swallow you up at any moment. This is not a dramatic story from the Left Behind series. Uh, it's not a piece of creative writing from an undergraduate class. This is a news report about volcanic activity in Grindavik, Iceland, written this week on the Sky News app. What do you do when terra firma is torn in two? Uh, when it's no longer firm, when it's terra wobbler, I don't really know much Latin, but uh, that could be it. <laughs> the earth exists. The earth will always exist. That's my truth, right? That's the truth. I trust it. Well, what if it doesn't? What if in an instant you're confronted with the reality that this does not last? Then what? You get a snapshot of that most weeks. When your job doesn't last, or your marriage doesn't last, or your health doesn't last, and your little world falls apart, why so surprising that the whole thing will one day? When our very lives testify to the fact that this does not last. I'm not making light of any of this. 
if we've prayed together in a hospital or in your office or your home about your health or your finances or your family, you will know that we have wept together about those things. I've basically, I've been here 10 years, I've basically just wept my way around Allegheny County and across most of the bridges. It's not a smug remark about how stupid you all are for trusting this world and being comfy, you fools. You know from my own story that it took the falling apart of my little world for me to find Jesus Christ. It was the failure of some of these things. And in fact, to be more honest, it was the failure of myself and the coming to an end of myself and depression that led me into the arms of Jesus, that shook me enough to look for something more stable. And I found him, and he's coming soon. What else is it like in the end? Well, in verse 18, in graphic detail, we see all the enemies of Christ devoured. And in verse 21, slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all of the birds were gorged with their flesh, even kings, even mighty captains, even owners of slaves, are eaten up by vultures and crows. This is a common Old Testament image of a final, total, ignominious end. And in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet, the apparatchiks of the enemy, who terrified and seduced and deceived whole nations into believing a different truth and becoming the enemies of God, are captured. They are forcibly grabbed up and thrown into the lake of fire alive. The lake of fire that burns, done away with. So what about you? Are you ready? Or more importantly, how do you be ready? Note for a moment how the soldier, the judge, and the king is clothed in verse 13. We've had a behold, that means slow down, zoom in, don't miss this detail. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. But do you see how he's wearing it before the battle? Before any of the enemies have been slain. That's because the blood is his own. The tense of the verbs, is clothed, is dipped, indicates permanency. And this reveals to us, this blood on his robes, that all of the shame of judgment and death on that battlefield has already been borne by him. It's already happened to him. So that some of us might avoid it. He was crushed and pierced for us. He bled for us. Before the fury of the, he bore the fury of the wrath of that press for us, entered into the very press. And then smashed it from the inside out. Obliterated it. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Death could not hold him. After judgment for our sin, Jesus rose from the dead. For us. He offers to impute you with his blood. To clothe you in a robe like his own. To place his identity upon you. To seal you with it. Having 
taken on your identity of sin. He offers to give you his identity of holiness, of righteousness, of power, of authority, of sinlessness. And the reason why he's coming to smash this naughty world to bits, that's what Cranmer called it, is so that he could make a new one. That's why this world is falling apart, because we are not to trust it. That's why our families and our bodies and our finances are falling apart. Because we're not to trust those things. Not to make this our home. This is not permanent. This will end. We are to trust in the one who alone is perfect. And who promises to transport us to a new creation where death and disease and no more, and where every tear is wiped away. The Bible ends with these words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. The only means by which we are ready is grace. It's a gift, a free gift. It's given without price. And here's the critical thing, not because there is no price, but because the price has already been paid by Christ in full with his blood. He paid it for us. That's how you be ready. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we end the year, we thank you that we are ready for the end of the world. Uh, we have run around busy, hard-pressed, panicking. We've been abused. We've been threatened. We've been disappointed. We've been bereaved. We've worried. We've been alarmed. We've been shaken. And Lord, I thank you that you've entered every single one of those situations for us. That you've borne the full fury and pressure of the press on our behalf. That you've been strewn across that battlefield for us so that you might redeem us. So, Father, I pray that we would know the liveliness of your grace this morning. That if there is anything at all whatsoever on our hearts as a, as a condemnatory word, that the enemy's whispering that we're not good enough for you. I pray that the blood of the Lamb and this final word of grace would wash over all of that so that we know when you look upon us, you see your own son standing in our place. And those sins that have been done to us and done by us, are thrown away and burnt away. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.